This one's just mind-blowing. The UAE, obviously famous for its oil wealth, they now get 25% of their power from nuclear. The UAE. <laughs> that just left me speechless. And on top of that, you, you don't really read much about it. You can, you can think of it as an intention to move the market, right? That's what they're doing. It's a super thinly traded market. It doesn't take too much volume to actually really move these prices here. At any time they trade above NAV, they buy the physical. It's brought us board. 62 million pounds in the last couple years. So that is on sort of estimated global physical demand over one year at 180 million. So that's a huge amount. G'day money miners, it's nuclear time. Is that a bit? That sounded like one of those Channel Nine intros. Oh, you got to keep for mixing the state, it up, mate. For the state of origin, JD Trav. What are we? Sixth of July. What is it? Thursday. Mate, I am radiating. <laughs> oh, sensational! When did you think of that one, mate? <laughs> Just then. <laughs> JD's been researching that art. He's about to actually have a meltdown. <laughs> Oh, oh, they just yeah. keep coming. Oh, boys. They just keep coming. Boys, yesterday's episode was a bit of a... It was a bloody, bomb. It was a... It, was a, it went off. <laughs> uh, bloody best ranked one out of 10 for 24-hour views, our chat with Wayne. Was Sensational, it? yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's absolutely smashed it. Good stuff. Um, Uranium. Bit of word on the... De- should I do uh, the word on the decline yeah, we missed from yesterday? Got? Mm. Well, after after that chat, you know, having a bit of a talk around with folks, probably I think a key element we missed in this gold M and A play is evolution. Yeah, possibly, possibly evolution uh, coming in for got, Musgrave. Well, no, coming in for that area. So like that they possibly coming in for like a West Gold or something. Going going big. Apparently, they've got a lot of liquidity now with yeah. cash and uh, their debt facilities. Nearly a billion dollars worth of liquidity. They had a big investor day about a month ago, and Jake Klein said they're on the hunt for you know potentially a couple more assets. They're looking. So the thing with evolution though is people that invest in them love them because they've got this low. Relatively low oil and sustaining cost. We know that's a bit of, of the a copper art, artificial. Art, yeah, it's artificially yeah. low because of the copper credits. But acquiring West Coal doesn't help that proposition um, because it's a high cost producer. Mm, so you know we're talking, we're looking at West Coal being the big player in that area to take. You know whether it's and Romelius with Gascoigne and and Musgrave and Alto and Great Boulder and all that. But is there going to be a bigger player that's just going to consolidate the much, whole region? Much bigger fish. Uh, evolution. Because you can write you nearly write Northern Star off with the amount of capex they're putting into KCGM. It looks like they're pretty tied up. But will Evolution make a play? I don't know. Word is, on the decline. I don't think West Coal is a takeover target. Hmm. I was not. I was getting a little bit conspiratorial when they had this um, change of substantial coming. It looked like a bit of a swap, but I've, I've toned my, my my nerve on that one. But we'll see. Wait and see. Right, boys. Let's get into uranium. U two three whatever it bloody is on the periodic table. JD <laughs> has gone bloody balls deep into uh, the world of nuclear reaction. Right, I think I've just scratched the surface actually. There's there's so much to this one, but we just want to see what the mining miners think, whether they like a bit of nuclear, uranium, ASX players and the like. So yeah, I think, I think this feedback. will open us up to a lot more uranium conversations with people that get in touch following this. So I guess this is the, this is the intro into nuclear and uranium and what's going on. Yeah, so JD. let's get into it and like why we started researching yeah, it. Yeah, how'd you come about this actually, JD? What, what sort of sparked your interest to do this episode? So Sweden came out with an announcement uh, a bit less than two weeks ago now, I think, 
and they essentially changed their their climate goals. So they changed their 2045 goal from 100% renewable to carbon neutral. So prior to this decision, you know, 40 odd years ago in 1980, just after the Three Mile Island accident, they voted to stop all expansion and phase out nuclear. Now, this was going to be a a multi-decade process because these power plants have lives, you know, they can have lives over 50 years. What what, what was the Three Mile Island accident? It was uh, a bit of a meltdown at a at a nuclear power plant in America around that time. Just I think 1980 is when it happened, and no, nobody actually passed away there, but it just caused another bit of commotion, similar to Chernobyl. That was a few years after that, although and, people and did Fukushima. pass away. Yeah, yeah. So they're the three big significant events that a lot of you know nuclear critics point to. Yeah, yeah, and it's a like, absolute crock of shit that we've had no development in the nuclear space as a result of the, I guess, political opposition um, campaigning that's gone against it. We all know it's like super clean energy from a Yeah, one, of the, safest, one of the safest sources of energy we can get, you know, reliable baseload energy. So we'll, we'll get more into that. So what Sweden's now done is they've come out and they want to be carbon neutral by 2045. So that's the same year, just a bit of a different stance. And obviously the key component is that they're now including nuclear in that energy mix, whereas that wasn't previously the case. They're going to wind down their nuclear power plants. So it's been a bit of a while in the making. In 2016, Sweden's parliament agreed that new nuclear reactors could be built only at existing sites. But in reality, this is just cost prohibitive. They just they couldn't get there because these things are quite expensive. So now they've come out and changed it and they're going to provide loan guarantees. So in 20 they, they have it they have a pretty high proportion of their current electricity coming from these, you know, non-fossil fuel sources already, don't they, Jay? They have, they have 30% coming from nuclear and they have an astonishing 98% of their electricity, so not all their um, energy requirements, but 98% of their electricity comes from non-fossil fuel. So obviously up in Sweden and in Scandinavia, they have a lot of hydropower similar to the Norwegians as well. And they have substantially grown their their wind capacity. Pretty pretty amazing. So the state-owned utility, Vettenfall, is now planning to build two small modular reactors, which we'll touch on again later. And they're also looking to extend the life of the, the remaining nuclear reactors that the country has. So just sorry, JD, before you go on, when you were talking about electricity and power, so is when you say total power power generation for a, a country, that includes like your fuel for cars and, and things like that. So electricity is only one component of the total power. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, got you now. So they're expecting quite a bit of a pickup in the next, you know, in the coming decades in the electricity demand because some of the biggest businesses in Sweden, I sort of had to, um, you know, check this as I was reading through, but they're mining and mining related. So Matty, you'd have seen heaps of these, but Atlas Copco, Epiroc, Sandvik, you know, they've got steel producers, SSAB. Atlas Copco was split into Atlas Copco and Epiroc. So Epiroc's the mining division. It used to be all under Atlas Copco, but yeah, huge. Sandvik Sandvik and Epiroc are the, the or two of the, or if not the two biggest suppliers of mining equipment. Yeah, yeah, that's like right. Under, so, underground, mostly un, like for the underground industry anyway. Yeah, and some of these sort of manufacturing and mining-related companies, like their state-owned iron ore um, company, LKAB, they need pretty substantial amounts of energy. So they said... I'm pretty sure that's an underground iron ore mine, that one. Uh, yeah, and it's, pretty, it's not a yeah. complete private 
company either. There's state, state ownership there. But they said alone that their processes would need one third of the entire of Sweden's 2019 power. So wow. pretty, pretty substantial stuff. So I reckon next we should just zoom out and see what's going on in the nuclear front. Because with nuclear, it's super case by case, country by country. Stances are different all around the world. So just running I mean, through some of the high level facts, 10% of electricity globally is generated from nuclear. I wouldn't have thought that, like first pass. I would not have predicted that. Because 0% Australia. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, because we live in a 0% yeah. nuclear environment. You would not think that, I wouldn't have thought that 10%, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. so there like was a- China, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and China's only a growing component. So that that generation is at the same level it was roughly 20 years ago, but through the 70s, 80s and 90s, it picked up as amount of total output. So if you go to- Europe, in Germany, they've been sort of quite famous or infam infamously, depending on who you ask, phasing out nuclear. This was bizarre. I, I remember this sort of last year Crazy. when you had the, such tightness in the energy markets by virtue of the you know, Russia-Ukraine conflict and Germany sitting there you know, phasing out their nuclear plants and importing by, shitloads of coal. By the Green, Green Party, no less. It's just astounding. So you also have France. They're the like one of the biggest pro-nuclear countries in the world. 70% of their electricity and 40% of their power generation overall comes from nuclear. That's greater than any other country in the world. You've got Japan. Obviously, they had that horrible Fukushima disaster in 2011, but they've changed their stance since then. So nuclear power came to a bit of a standstill post-Fukushima, and now they're sort of doing a bit of a U-turn on that. They are restarting idle power plants and they're making plans to build next generation capacity. China, like you touched on, Trav, they're in the process of building 24 reactors. There was a um, an article that came out and uh, policy sort of decisions made by the Chinese a couple of years ago that they wanted to build 150 new re reactors within 15 years at a cost of 440 billion. Wow. And that, that might sound like a shitload of money, but... It is a shitload of money. <laughs> it is, but if you break it down per reactor, that is far cheaper than the West has been building them for a long, long time. Mm. Canada, this is just astounding. So Justin Trudeau, whose his party is famously anti-nuclear, he said not too long ago in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with one of the leaders of Germany that we are very, very, very serious about a return to nuclear and investing in some SMRs. So and he was pro-nuclear or anti? They were anti. Anti-nuclear. Supposedly green, but anti-nuclear. And now they're yeah. just doing a complete 180. Yeah, right. But he went on to say, we're going to need a lot more energy and we're going to have to do much more nuclear over the coming decades. So that is just a complete about face from their policy for a long, long time. You've got the Inflation Reduction Act in America, which we're going to delve into a lot more in the future. And they're including production tax credits to help preserve the existing fleet of nuclear plants. They also started up a new plant for the first time in seven years. It was, there was a, uh, an amazing stat you told me about the UAE, JD. This one's just mind-blowing. So the UAE, obviously famous for its oil wealth, one of the cheapest oil fossil fuel producers in the world, they now get 25% of their power from nuclear. Yeah. So in about 10 years, they constructed four new reactors and brought them online. That is just... UAE. <laughs> it's like, that just left me speechless. And on top of that, you, you don't really read much about it. No. Like, that's an astounding fact. Not until now. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested to hear where they um, purchase, or especially when they're such a big producer and exporter of oil, like they've gone from using yeah. that to now 
so importing the, the, uranium to supply their power. Yeah, so the the uranium itself will come from places like Australia and the, the plants were built in joint venture with South Korean groups. Gotcha, leveraging their expertise. Yeah. But you kept talking about these small modular reactors, the SMRs. Like yeah. that's the rage now, right? Like, yeah, let's let's touch on them because these traditional nuclear reactors, you know, they've got a big upfront cost. You know, the marginal cost to produce energy is small, but they're huge upfront costs. And a lot of the like the IP, the the technical know-how has been lost in in the West because we haven't built new ones in so long. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you know startups and uh, ventures with you know government private startups have been developing small modular reactors. So just quickly, what they are, they're obviously smaller than traditional nuclear reactors. They're modular, meaning factories can build and assemble components. And obviously they're reactors, so they harness nuclear fission to generate heat to produce energy. That's similar to a traditional nuclear power plant as well. So when, such, when, did the, when did these come about, these SMRs? They're still really in development phases. Right. So there's only two countries in the world. And talked about for ages. Yeah. So there's still there's only two countries in the moment, China and Russia, that actually have functional SMRs. Yeah. But there are dozens and dozens of countries that are looking to produce these. Like even uh, Bill Gates famously spoke a couple of years ago about investing bucket loads of money into this. And this is a future. Like there's there's advantage. There's they're smaller. They uh, can be built quicker and be assembled. Mm. You know, in in different locations. They, they can huge, be all hooked up together, right? Yeah, modular. Yeah, but they're huge barrier to funding any nuclear plant is financing it, right? Because you're looking at billions in CapEx. It's so hard to finance billions in CapEx. Yeah. So the moment you can lower that into the hundreds of millions, it's so much more palatable. Yeah. So that's just a a standout key differentiator from traditional nuclear power plants. And then you also potentially have less frequent refueling of these SMRs. So what's that? What's that mean? Potentially less frequent refueling. How does that work? So these things have enriched uranium go into them, you know, on on the period of every few years or so. And these smaller ones would perhaps not need as frequent refueling because they're not as big a scale operations. Also means less waste, right? Because you're putting it in and it's got to come out in some way as well. But if you're putting less in, you're also getting less out from a waste angle. Yeah, Yeah. righto. So why don't we get into Australia? And like you touched on before, Maddie, we, we don't have nuclear here. Our situation is pretty, pretty different to Sweden. Well, I suppose the only thing we know about uranium in Australia is what, Olympic Dam. Absolutely. <laughs> like not, a, not just Olympic Dam as well. You had Ranger in the Northern Ranger, Territory yeah. for a long Honey time. Honeymoon's coming back online. I mean, yeah. it's, we've had, yeah, uranium mines. Obviously, some of them aren't pure play uranium mines. And we've got, some of, we've got the biggest reserves of uranium in the world. We've got some of the biggest deposits up, up in the Northern Territory. And the, the reason that these, like, power plants haven't been a, a feature in the Australian energy mix for forever. I mean, that just goes back a long time. There was huge anti-nuclear rallies in across Australian cities in the 70s, like there was around the world. And then we sort of just came to the conclusion because we had cheap coal and other sources of energy that we didn't need them. And we've never got around to actually building them. Whether we actually turn to having nuclear be a component of our energy mix sort of remains a point of debate. And yeah, and we've got like you know, other energy sources are actually not so cheap anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, oil prices are elevated high and staying high. Coal prices doing the same. I mean, we just got you know a re-rating in energy prices across the globe. Yeah. I think that incentivizes the alternative. Renewables aren't as cheap as a lot of people sort of perhaps think they are. You know, you have to build all these things as well. They have certain lifetimes 
to them. And then we've got to also supply power to a growing global population as well. So while, yeah. while the time of this stuff's becoming more expensive, there's more bloody people on the earth to supply power too. Yeah, exactly, so, Matty. So that, that sort of leads to the market dynamics and there's a whole bunch of different facets that we can talk about when it comes to the market dynamics of uranium. So why don't we just start with, with the price? So we're at about 57 US dollars per pound right now in the spot market. Now that's not always the price that these term contracts are signed at. So the term contracts are the contracts between the uranium miners and the utilities that, you know, need the uranium for the, the power plants. So similar to, it's, a, it's similar to a nickel setup, like it's a, you're a, the miner has to have an offtake with a power plant or something yeah, I mean, like in, that. In a sense, you've seen it with lithium as well in the terms of just what an offtake is. You know, you're, you're getting access to a, a set amount and you're selling it for a fixed price. So that the the company producing the stuff, that's just how it is. It's not like gold that's not like sold, gold. Yeah. sold at a spot price. So traditionally these deals have been signed at a sort of 10 US dollar per pound premium to what the spot price is. The demand from China is where a lot of the conversation goes, JD. What did you look at there? So China, like is the case with pretty much all commodities, is just a, a behemoth, you know. They consume so much and... The, the growth we spoke about when touching on different countries before is just magnified in China because, because of the ginormous population that they have. So they've come out in recent sort of times and said they want to produce one third of their uranium domestically, another third through foreign, you know, owned mines in joint ventures and so on. And then they actually want to purchase a third on the open market. Now, there's another aspect of spot price that's that's fascinating. It's these... Physical uranium trusts getting in there and and buying the financial oh, yeah. market players. Ma- Matty yeah. uh, Matty Langsford was talking about that the yeah, other exactly. day. The Sprot physical uranium trust. Yeah, hundred percent. So you've got those guys. You've got Yellow Cake, ANU Energy, URC. Some of them are raising money that haven't come on. Uh, the way they work yeah. is if they so have what, a trade what, bar. Even, what are these? Even Boss as well. They they bought physical piles. Yeah, that's to enter term contracts in the future. Yeah, yeah, but but. but the fact is that they, they're entering the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys like, you know, Sprott, they're buying and holding and sort of anticipating higher prices. Yeah. So is it, is it similar to what China, um, is it what China was doing with the, those Shanghai copper stockpiles? Oh, uh, that's, uh, you, can, you can think of it as an intention to move the market, right? That's what they're doing. It's a super thinly traded market, like r- real thin. So it doesn't take too much volume to actually really move these prices here. Um, and so Sprott, and a couple of others are, are set up around the thesis and you get a bit of speculation. Um, and any time they trade above NAV, they buy uh, they buy the physical and, and, and hold it. And Sprott has bought 62 million pounds in the last couple of years. So like what that, are they? They're storing it somewhere, are they? Yeah, they're, they're storing it. That, so that 62 million pounds is on sort of estimated global physical demand over one year at 180 million. So that's a huge amount. It's just... Crazy and yeah, like like you sort of said there, Maddie. They just hold it, and their and their their investment thesis is that long term uranium is going to go up, and they want to hold it. It's for- a trust, right? So you have some if you invest in it, you've got some entitlement to the, the physical, uh, and you know that they. So it, it, it's it's a mechanism for investors to cause a squeeze. That's how I think about it. But at the, at the end of the day, like it's supply that probably comes back into the market in one way, shape or form down the track. But yeah. Now, if it's a trust, do they have to, don't they have to, doesn't a trust have to distribute earnings every year? Uh, it's not a trust in the sense that I think you're thinking with an Australian like funds management group. It's, it's slightly different. Like these, are, these are 
Canadian mob. Yeah. So it's slightly different. Um, there's another aspect of, you know, future potential supply that's also interesting that's inventories. So over the past sort of 12 years since Fukushima, we've seen inventory levels supposedly just wind lower and lower and lower. Like inventories are, are pretty hard to get a, a view on there. It's a bit of an opaque space to see, you know, which of these major companies and governments and so on, how much they're actually holding. But given we're sort of seeing an uptick in demand, you're sort of seeing analysts start to start to forecast that we're near the end of that drawdown and that these utilities are going to have to go to the market again. And that is another sort of added aspect to the, to the bull thesis. Now, you've also got the supply chain dynamics. And one part of this stands out to me, which I find really fascinating. It's the enrichment process. And we won't get into the, the science there at all because it's, you know, it's quite complex. But the, the main takeaway is that about a third of this is done in Russia. Now, you know, that, that it just obviously screams out as a sort of not secure supply chain and that's something these Western countries and utilities are going to have to, you know, change. They're going to have to invest in enrichment capacity in more aligned countries or in their own countries. There's, there's an act going through the Senate in the US right now. It's like yep. the um, reduce uranium imports from Russia act, yeah. something like that. Yeah, so obviously these, these guys... Uh, Rosatom, they haven't been sanctioned because of their strategic importance to, to Western countries. Another sort of fascinating aspect of future potential supply is what they call secondary supply. So this sort of refers to the uranium that is obtained through various alternative means rather than just, you know, being the primary product from a mine. So a couple of examples are, you know, depleted uranium that's been generated as a, as a byproduct after that enrichment process that I just touched on. You've got stockpiles that are held by governments and utilities and then there's reprocessed uranium and there's a few other sort of aspects that add to that secondary sort of supply. Mm. There's one one interesting takeaway I had when I was listening back to your conversation with Matty Langsford when he, you know, dabbled into the uranium space. You brought up Next Gen JD and, um, and, 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 and posed the question to him, you know, what impact will that, I think it's like 30 million pounds of new uranium have on the market when it enters in, I think you said FY27. And, and he said, well, do you think it's going to be FY27? There was some kind of indication that in reality, when you have to build these things from a discovery through, through to a mine, that the real timelines are going to be longer as well. And I think that adds to that kind of market dynamic you're talking about. Agreed. Definitely. Yeah. There's, there's another interesting dynamic with the, um, the sort of listed equity value and the, the uranium price, just a bit of a chart that I think you saw. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm kind of interested in this from the angle of like, what, is the, what do these market dynamics mean for the stocks? Um, that's what we talk about, right? The stocks. And um, there's one, one chart you can sort of get some indication of relative valuation on a historical basis. You can chart up the URA ETF which um, consists of, you know, uranium stocks and divide it just by the, the, the commodity futures curve. Um, for reviewers to whether equities are relatively overvalued or undervalued historically, you know, versus the, the underlying. And you can see it's kind of like it's near, um, near all-time lows in some ways. It's, it's super depressed there. So uh, like, like an absolute face value and it's a thumbsuck metric, it looks like, the, you know, the equities are pretty beaten up relative to what's happening um, in the spot commodity right now. And I think a lot of that is because these equities are a high beta and um, the market's very risk off right now. Yeah. I think a lot of those sort of bulls that go into the uranium stocks are hoping for a sort of price spike that we saw in sort of 2007 mm. and yeah. just, 
you know, these guys, the, the high cost producers have a sort of a lot of talk to that, that price. Yeah. And, and speaking of the, you know, the bulls and the bears, um, Shaw's, they put out their quarterly research monitor today. And that includes a uranium sector piece. Their, their bulls, they model a price spike going all the way up to US 85 bucks per pound. And then um, in real terms, it, 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 having a long-term price of US 67 bucks per pound. So, you know, and they point to um, the upside risk to demand, the return of utilities to the term contract market and the potential for more government support as um, as the basis for their, their, their bullish take on it. But on the other side of that equation, JD, I listened to a, an interview with Warren Irwin last night. Warren Irwin, friend, friend, of, of, the, friend of the show. Friend of the pod. He was, uh, <laughs> I think he was the first fundy that we had Oh, no, my second funny we had uh, come on the, the, the yeah. podcast for an interview and he, um, he couldn't help himself but talk about uranium. And I'm going to play that bit for you and Maddie now. The current uh, group of uranium speculators are some of the most rabid speculators I've ever seen in my entire almost 40 years in the business. They are lunatics. And why they're lunatics is because they're all expecting the big run up to 140 and they're inflation adjusting 140 you know, back when it happened in 2007, eight timeframe. And now they say, well, if you inflation adjusted, it's going to be $200 a pound. And I'm going to make so much money in these crappy little uranium companies, all rich and I'll have generational wealth. And so they're getting all pretty jacked up, right? Uh, but if, if you take a look back, okay, realistically, okay, at the last uranium run, um, you know, Paladin, yeah, it went from like, you know, nickel dime to eight bucks and but then went right back down again. There was zero value created, zero. You look at the four to 600 uranium juniors that were created last time. Like almost all of them went to zero, zero, right? So the the promoters and the, the shills got out there and just raped the market and took millions and millions off the table from new unsuspecting investors. So who's the new group today that, that wants to speculate in the sector? Like that? Well, they're the people that didn't get smoked back in 2007, 2008. Zero. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> what, what do you think, JD? Mate? I love it. Yeah. He's, uh, he's got a few strongly held opinions and, you know, he's been around the markets so very, quite a bit longer than we have. So very contrarian to the uranium thesis. Yeah, well, he's, he's bullish nuclear. He likes uranium, but he just doesn't want people to get carried away. I fucking love him because he's so bold and has such an I don't give a fuck stance. Yeah. Um, and I just love that. It's great content. I don't know if he's got the bloody um, returns to back it up, but I love the content, Warren. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Before we get into the ASX plays, JD, um, question to probably, if if you do know, or future question would like to know, it'd be good to know how much uranium is like needed to supply it around the world like how much in demand will it be like in comparison to say coal lithium like when you balance the abundance of it the mineability then to start really amping it up across the world i'd, I'd like some color on that it's probably not something that we can discuss today i'm sure someone's got a view on it but yeah, i'm sure it'd be good to, to know how much nah, how much would olympic dam uranium supply there like, are all of the, mate, every single commodity is filled with these charts that show a supply gap and some of them are real and some of them are crock of shit because they just show some compound annual growth rate that's got some stupid assumptions baked into it um so i'm just a bit apprehensive to ever talk about that piece but what about i want to know how much for the uranium that comes out of olympic dam what does that power like into like because i can't i haven't got a gauge on how yeah. much uranium does what 
Yeah. Like, is it more it's, efficient? Is it more efficient than efficient. coal? It's hyper efficient. These tiny little pallets create so much fucking power, so much power. Um, it's such an efficient, like, you know, and the energy density of uranium is unparalleled and it's like orders of magnitude more efficient than coal in that regard. So, I mean, the, it's the capital intensity that's prohibitive and the, and the political um, opposition to it. There you go. Yeah. Great answer. ASX players, should we get into them? Oh, the stocks. The money miner's going to want to know about the stocks, yeah, man. Who, do you, who do you bet on? Oh, that's it, right? And, and we're, we're focused on the ASX players because we're, we're, we're based in, in Australia and we, um, we're familiar with the ASX. So I'm relatively keen to, to talk about some of the names that are on the ASX that um, people try to get exposure to uranium via, and there's quite a few of them. I mean, the, the biggest pure play uranium name on there is Paladin. PDN is the ticker. They're restarting the Langer Heinrich uranium mine in Namibia. Um, it, it used to be like a dis- pretty distressed situation, but they've cleaned the balance sheet up now. The project, it is 25% Chinese owned, um, but it's currently 45% constructed now. And indications are that it's going to be on time and on budget. The offtakes are largely with the Chinese partner there. But the company's capped at two point two billion, um, and so it just it captures the attention of the fundies via its size and um, perceived like greatest risk reward sort of ratio for that reason. Yeah, Paladin um, was the one that Warren just mentioned there. They had uh, a real tear fifteen odd years ago, and I mean, look at the share price, right? It just yeah, wild. I mean, yeah, obviously uranium um, markets went like crazy and then stop being crazy um and then if you have a debt you become distressed and that kills your equity uh, they had a bunch of restructurings and uh had to sell non-core projects etc but the balance sheet's clean now the project's set to come online in uh calendar year 2024 yep we've also got boss energy a bit closer to home this one so they're they're um developing the well restarting the honeymoon uh mine there that's in in south australia and it's on track for first production in late 2023, so this year, it's been one of the better performing stocks on the ASX this year. It's up 53% and it's now capped at over a billion dollars itself. Um, they're, they're yet to announce any sales into the term market, but they've purchased the 1.25 million pounds of fiscal uranium, which uh, it, it'll be able to deliver into the contracts like you know during ramp up itself. I think given the good run that they've had, they look pretty fully valued you know, absent the strong commodity run of the underlying, there's still ramp up risk there, right? Um, but the current market cap is a few multiples of the initial mine life NPV, which always makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah, and they're not a not a super low cost producer of uranium, so mm. they need a slightly higher price to be. Um, yeah, the way to think about all of these restart mines is they restart for a reason. That's because they were put into care and maintenance at yeah. one point because you know, the market fell. So you can't expect the restart. The restart ones are great because they're the first ones back into production because the capex hurdle is lower, but they are inevitably the, the marginal um, cost producers. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the ones we'll talk about, you know, the higher market cap ones are restart. Mm-hmm. So we've also got Peninsula. Another restart one, these ones, that, I mean, they're, they're going to be the first mine restart back into production, expected mid-year this year, so any time now. Um, they're restarting the Lance Project in Wyoming, USA. They're a major beneficiary of the government support. We, we talked about the Reduced Russian Uranium Imports Act, uh, which is currently going through the Senate, and, um, you know, that, that's some pro-domestic mine development initiative out of the, out of the US there, which, you know, they, they, they benefit from. You look at their production profile, stage one is going to be 0.8 million pounds of um, uranium per, per annum and stage two can take it up to, to 2 million pounds per annum. 
it's capped at about 250 million US dollars. They've entered long-term sales contracts out to 2033 with major utilities there. And there was another one as well, one of the bigger, you know, capped at uh, a couple hundred million, I think, um, Lotus. Yep, Lotus so there. African asset. They're restarting their... Kayla Kirat mine in Malawi, someone's going to correct me on this one, but they've got an 85% interest in that one. FID is expected in the second half of this year. Uh, the project was put on care and maintenance by Paladin actually in 2014. Um, but yeah, Lotus, they're capped at about 250 million at the moment. The project looks like it can produce 2.5 million pounds of uranium per annum from 2026. So it's a bit further out in time. Um, the DFS, you know, signpost CapEx at about US 100 million with a 10 year mine life, but you know, you've got to wait for FID before you can um, get too excited. So, Definitely. Now there's, I mean, like Warren sort of touched on, hundreds of these companies were made, you know, back in the boom times and there's still like a number around and the interest has sort of picked up again in the last couple of years. So there's a few other sort of high cost developer stories that you looked at as well, aren't there? Yeah, I, I think when the physical runs, it's the, the most – you know, the highest beta stocks that run the most, um, but those ones don't last the cycle and they, they, they just, um, they get wiped out, right? Like, like Warren said, they go zero. Uh, so, but it's, you know, this, this one might not fit that category, but it's the ones that pop up that have um, just a resource and it's lower grade than anything else out there, but they run so hard because um, the market just gets excited and the smaller names and they all pump. But um, Bannerman is, uh, I think of it as the, you know, the most leveraged name in the in the sector. Um, they've got this undeveloped project in Namibia called Itango. It's been around for a long time, mate. Uh, it's low grade deposit, so high cost operation there. Requires probably prices of between seventy and eighty five um, bucks per pound to incentivize investment to to build that capacity. And if it ever does get built, there's a fifteen year mine life project there. Um, there's heaps of others too. Like there's, there's um, Deep Yellow. Um, they're they're one of the players that actually hold physical as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's just um, there's a, lot of, a lot of these players around and a lot of the, the undeveloped, um, you know, ones in, in Namibia and in, in Africa, they, they fit that category of, of low grade. They would be high cost and they need the higher uh, long-term price in order to incentivize it to actually come on. At the same time though, I think... It's actually worth talking about a couple of the non-ASX names. We, we're pretty familiar with NextGen, which technically is has an ASX listing these days. It doesn't have too much liquidity versus its one in Canada, but yeah. that's just an you know an amazingly high-grade deposit. Um, you know, potentially one of the best you know undeveloped projects globally. Yeah, in so. that Athabasca Basin up in Canada. You've also got Cameco. They're the behemoth, the American you know utility. Mm -hmm. The Kazakhs have a lot of low-cost production. Uh, I think they've actually got a, a bit of a listing, a small bit of float on the London exchange. I have to fact-check that one. But, yeah, they're, they're the, the main players. You've obviously, like you said, got the Chinese, have their presence sort of felt in a lot of African deposits too. Yeah. And then you've got, obviously, BHP is the big one in Australia. Exactly. The biggest, so biggest producer. I just looked up some quick figures. Uh, so Paladin's flagship one's going to produce about 2250 tonne of uranium a year, which is 5 million pounds. 5 million uh, pounds, yeah. Olympic Dam produces about double of that. So they produce between 3,500 to 4,500 tonne of uranium. Is the uranium even the major? Like, no, nah, copper is. Yeah. Copper, gold, but they, uranium, but they, but they silver. have to um, they have to go through the whole smelting process on site because of the uranium. They yep. have to smelt the copper. 
Um, yeah, and that, that honeymoon project is in a similar area from from Boss Energy in, in South Australia as well. Yeah, so I'll just I guess it shows even though BHP is not a uranium play, it shows how much uranium that one mine pumps Absolutely. out we, is pretty much double to what these other ones are. Yeah, and we said to, that global demand was sort of estimated at 180 million pounds, and like you're saying, sort of 10. So it looks yeah. like about somewhere between 10 a year comes out of BHP. Yeah, well, out, out of Olympic Dam. I think it said, yeah, three and a half to four and a half thousand ton. Perfect, guys. So I reckon this energy transition, these energy security issues, you know, they're front and centre. They're not going away. We're going to keep following it. And I reckon hopefully if the money miners like it, there's sort of space for a lot more debate around this hopefully sort of value-added educational debate. And in saying that, I've probably got a heap of things wrong here. So money miners, feel free to sort of chime in, let us know. Welcome to my world, JD, (laughs) uh, social media bloody criticisms. Love it. You've got to put yourself out there. I reckon Langer's Langer's from Terra is going to be extremely handy to expand on uh, the TSX plays of uranium and what's happening in what's in North America, I think. Yeah, there's there's actual experts out there that, you know, the phone line is open at Money of Mine. Get in touch. Rick Rule loves uranium. He's yeah. another uranium <laughs> Looking bull. for his email address. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Anyone that knows Rick, put us in touch. We'd love to have the big fella on. He's the man. <laughs> oh, the yeah. soundbite king. Yeah, so we, we tried to, you know, fact check everything and just give, it, give you guys the information, but... Get in touch. We're happy to expand on this conversation. Beautiful. Any, uh, oh, what else? Any messages to the money miners? Join the Hooter Road chat if you haven't yet. And if you want to join the Hooter Road chat, join the money miners Facebook group first. That gives you access to the Hooter Road chat. Yep. In the show notes as well, we've got the uh, email newsletter. Get on board. We'll yep. Sign out- up. JD's got a sensational, sexy looking newsletter that's going yeah. to come out Once every Saturday. Yeah, something like J- that. Just like when you're having your morning coffee or where, you know, your kids are playing sport and it's boring as shit and you want to go <laughs> sit in the shitter and read the n- money of my newsletter, we mm. will have it on your doorstep and, via your phone. And we're going to Diggers. So if you if you're having an event in we Diggers. We are going to a lot of places. Yeah, if, you, if you're, if you're yeah. having an event at Diggers, invite us because we're fun. We're booked, we're booked out Monday night. I've got the kind of cool one. We've got site visits potentially coming up too. We do, yeah. We're going on the road. Yeah, we're doing mobile shows, you know, all yeah. around. Now, if you, if you want the bloody go-to mining media on your mine site, uh, I promise why I won't touch a jumbo. When I come. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Who do you guys? Right on, Money Mice. Great work, JD. Go on the research there, mate. That was bloody oh, thanks, sensational. Cover. I love your bloody macro-ish bloody episodes where you go wide and far, far and wide. Appreciate it, big fella. Righto. money miners. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.